So now I want to pivot to the third topic um, that I wanted to address. And I want to talk about genocide. I do not want to litigate. I'm not interested in litigating if uh, the current war in Gaza is a genocide. That's not, that's not my question at all. I don't want to litigate that. I don't want, even want to worry about that question right now. Um, the, the Hague has weighed in. And if that's satisfactory to you, then you can consult with the Hague or you can say that's not satisfactory. That's fine as well. Um, I, I am interested in, in exploring uh, this question of how genocides happen, what genocides look like. Um, I remember an article that was passed around a few times. Uh, drowning doesn't look like drowning. You know, the idea is the way we think drowning looks is not the way drowning actually looks. And that's important to know if you want to identify drowning. And so I would suggest that, you know, genocides don't look like genocides. And I would suggest that uh, it's helpful for many reasons to, to apply a binary of yes, no genocide. There's all sorts of good reasons to get that right and to litigate these questions. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, what's more important, practically speaking, is that genocides exist on a spectrum and identifying uh, the conditions and the, that spectrum of genocide is much more practically useful. So to start, I, th I want to just sort of point out um, that genocide is actually extremely banal and ubiquitous. Uh, you can consult the Wikipedia list of genocides and you'll see there have been many genocides according to Wikipedia in the 21st century. Um, and the well, maybe not the 21st century, but the 20th century for sure. Um, the Bible is rife with genocide, right? Should we pull up Deuteronomy 20? Deuteronomy, whoops. What's Deuteronomy chapter 20? Deuteronomy chapter 20. The Hebrew, Rak me'arei ha'mima ele asher na'il hechanatan l'chanachalah. From these cities, from these cities of these nations, from which the Lord your God has given you inheritance, lo kol nishama. Do not let anyone live, no living soul. Ki hacharem tacharimem. This is my own translation, so you can consult, you know, whatever your English translation to see if I'm making some mistakes here. But fully, utterly annihilate them. Hachiti v'amoria k'nani v'aprezi hachivi v'yusi. All these nations, kasher tzivichad na'elecha, as God commanded you, l'man, asher lo, you do etchem, etc. So they shouldn't teach you to be uh, to do abominations. Saul, in the book of Samuel, he loses his kingship because he failed to exterminate the animals of Amalek, this nation that Israel is commanded to genocide, right? So what is this to say? This is not to say, this is not to say at all, don't misunderstand, this is not to say that Jews are, are genocidal. That is not my, my suggestion at all. And, and don't misunderstand that for a second. I'm not saying that Jews are uniquely genocidal. I'm saying it's completely banal. I'm claiming it's completely historical, meaning his, in, in history, genocide was seen as a perfectly legitimate way of dealing with an enemy population. Okay, That's the suggestion. Not that there's something special about Jews uh, or the Bible. You know, 
But of course, you know, if people are, a lot of people are caught up on, you know, certain texts in, in the Quran, certain, you know, verses that are violent in the Quran. But of course, if there's any message here, it's that all religious texts have violent uh, verses that are, you know, products of their time. Um, I'm asked by imagination, what, what you think about the 10 stages of genocide? I don't know. I had never seen it. I'd be curious to see it. Um, but let, let's, let's, let's look at some, some specifics. Let's look at some specifics of genocide. Um, I, I did a little bit of research for this live stream. I, I consulted a book called the Oxford Handbook of Genocide Studies. I didn't read the whole thing. It's like a textbook. Um, but there were some sections on there about the paradoxes of ethnic cleansing. So again, I'm, the book assumes an analogy, a, a spectrum, a continu continuity between ethnic cleansing and genocide. They're different, of course, legally and practically, but they're, they're related. And that there are these paradoxes. There's these, um, there's, there's these two sides to it. There's these two ways of looking at it. Uh, how can you determine, if you're a criminal court, an international criminal court, between violence that is uh, pre-planned, orchestrated by a government as part of a large program of ethnic cleansing or genocide versus violence that's opportunistic? right? And the Oxford Handbook of Genocide Studies talks about how you can't. Like, you sort of can't. I mean, you could, you could look at documents, but it exists on a spectrum, right? There's, it's not black and white. H how do you differentiate between what's centrally planned and spontaneous? In practice, it's not always possible, right? How do you differentiate between ethnic cleansing and ethnic conflict, right? But between what the government might have intended versus what actually ends up happening, you know, uh, often in, in dealing with genocides, uh, famine and disease plays a large role in killing large swaths of the population. Is that genocide? Maybe that wasn't intended. Okay, so these paradoxes exist. Um, and I want to just sort of point to a few uh, Wikipedia articles uh, that, that describe how genocides start. Um, but before I do that, let me read this comment, Professor. Rabbi Reuven Firestone talks about both violence in Judaism and another and, and another about Islam. Very unique figure who also has written for Islamic Studies Journal. Yeah, very interesting. I'd be, I'd be curious to check that out. Thank you. Um, let's pull up the Wikipedia for the Darfur Genocide. Let's pull up the Wikipedia for the Darfur Genocide. So I think, I think most people know that there was a genocide in Darfur. I think most people, until recently, myself included, didn't really know anything about the genocide. Um, so let's read about it, right? So what happened? You have Khartoum, which is the national government, and rebel groups in Darfur, right? These are rebel groups. Uh, rebel groups is like another way of saying terrorist groups, right? The rebel groups were initially formed in February 2003 due to Darfur's political and economic marginalization by Khartoum, right? So these terrorist groups formed because they were economically and politically marginalized. In April 2003, when the rebel groups attacked the military airfield and kidnapped an Air Force general, they carried out a horrific terror attack. The government launched a counterattack. It led to a response to the Khartoum government where they, where they armed militia forces to eliminate the rebellion, resulting in mass violence against the citizens in Darfur. Okay? That's the pattern. Um, one second here. Let me just move this over really quick. Okay. Let's do another one. 
right? Another important genocide. The Rohingya genocide. Pull it up. Initial border incidents. This is a genocide in Myanmar, 2016. According to Myanmar state reports, armed individuals attacked several border posts in Rakhine state, right? That left nine police personnel dead. This is a terror attack by the Rohingya in Myanmar. Weapons and ammunition were also looted. It was from a newly formed insurgent group, Harkan al-Yakin, who claimed responsibility. Right? This is a Rohingya terrorist group. This is the Hamas of Rohingya. Right? Then there was cranked crackdown. The Burmese military began a major crackdown in the villages. Dozens of people were killed, many arrested. Casualties increased. The crackdown continued. Okay? This is how these things play out. The point is that all genocides are reluctant genocides. I think our Holocaust education, my Holocaust education, might have done me a disservice because there's a sense of how evil the Nazis were. And, and maybe, maybe that's true, whatever you want. But in general, genocides are reluctant genocides. Genocides are this, we have no choice, right? You can go to war and fight an army and win a war against an army. But what do you do if your war is against a civilian population? What do you do if they don't have a government and an army, but they're just a terrorist group? What do you do? America had this problem in Iraq. America made terrorists faster than they can kill them in Iraq. What happens? So if you're in Iraq or Vietnam or something, maybe you can leave. But if, you're, if these are on your border, what do you do? So what happens is reluctantly, governments create this monstrosity of anti-terror, this monstrosity of a war on terror. And it doesn't feel like genocide. That's the point. It doesn't feel like a genocide. It just feels like security. It just feels like a war on terror. Okay. The same can be said of the Rwanda genocide of uh, 1994. Let's look at the Armenian genocide. This will be the last one because it gets a little repetitive at a certain point. Um, the Armenian genocide is a fascinating example because the Turks to this day deny there was a genocide. Um, let me find what I was looking for. Ottoman leaders, right? Ottoman leaders took isolated instance, instances of Armenian resistance as evidence of a widespread rebellion, right? Armenians are a persecuted minority in the Turkish Empire. There was instances of terror. It was seen as a widespread rebellion. Mass deportation was intended to permanently forestall the possibility of Armenian autonomy or independence. Now, I want to find the article of Armenian genocide denial. This is crucial. Okay? This is crucial. This is so crucial. The Igdir Genocide Memorial and Museum promotes the view that the Armenians committed genocide against the Turks rather than vice versa. Every genocide is controversial. Every genocide has two readings. 
Every genocide is this problem of us versus them. There's no coexistence possible. I have some comments here. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you for those comments. Um, let's look at the, uh, the denial. Let's see if we can find it. Shoot. Um, denialism in academia. Here we go. Examination of claims. Okay. Denialist works portray Armenians as terrorists and secessionists. The deportation was justified and proportionate response to Armenian treachery. Mm. Deaths are blamed on factors beyond the control of the Ottoman authorities, such as weather, disease, or rogue local officials. They say the number was fewer. Right. The assertion that Turks are incapable of committing genocide. It reminds me of like um, you know, the Israel idea, of like the most moral army in the world. You know, there's a sense that we have that we can't be genocidal because we're good people. You know, people feel that way. Um, another piece of, of Holocaust history that a lot of Jews, Orthodox Jews, uh, don't know. Um, in part because it's not so relevant to us, you might say, uh, is the story of Herschel Greenspan, who was a Jewish terrorist who assassinated a German diplomat. And this was the pretext to launch Kristallnacht. Now, Kristallnacht was a, was a, was a major uh, pogrom carried out by the Nazi party against Jews living in Germany that sort of uh, was the harbinger of, of the upcoming Holocaust. Um, we don't, we're not expected to remember this. The terror attack that precipitates collective punishment is not remembered by history. It's not important. What's remembered is the collective punishment. So, I mean, I think we can identify, you know, just certain themes that, that come up repeatedly um, when, you know, we look at genocide and it's the theme of, you know, fighting a war against stateless people, fighting a war against people who don't have a state. I mean, Israel can go to war against Egypt. Israel can go to war against Jordan. You can't really go to war against the Palestinian people. They don't have a government that has an army. You know, there's a sense of you can't negotiate with terrorists. There's a sense of the power of the, the label terrorist. You know, in, in Israeli, in, in the conversation around Israel, the world, the word terrorist carries so much power. You know, um, they'll say we freed terrorists in exchange for the hostages. It broke our heart that we had to free terrorists in exchange for the hostages. Okay. Nelson Mandela, who fought for uh, the end of apartheid in South Africa, he, he was also a terrorist at one point. The uh, Haganah, the early Israeli population living in Israel um, uh, during the British mandate, 
uh, fought against uh, the British. They blew up the King David Hotel in terror attack that killed people. So the power of the label terrorist um, and the troubles in Ireland was a battle against terrorists. And, and in all these cases, when, when, you, when genocide is averted, when genocide is avoided, it's because there's an understanding that you actually can negotiate with terrorists. You actually, actually terrorists are human beings too who are also responding to incentives. And it's this idea that you can't negotiate with terrorists or that these people only understand violence or coexistence is impossible. That's so dangerous. Um, so I guess two, two final points here and then uh, I'll basically be done. Uh, if anyone has any questions or wants to chat or whatever, I'm always available. Uh, so I'm happy to do that. But um, sort of the last two points um, to end with here. One is I, I identify like three hooks, three, um, three powerful distortions of our perspective that I think we need to just, just tap into and be aware of no matter where we are politically and no matter what we decide politically. Um, but this, this, this powerful idea of, I know I'm not evil, you know, the Armenian, the, the Turks defend their genocide. Turks are incapable of committing genocide. It's such a dangerous way of thinking. You know, I, I know I'm a good person. I know I'm not evil. Therefore, therefore, uh, I should be immune to any, any criticism is illegitimate or something. Um, this other one, this other distortion of perspective, you know, the sense that my trauma is legitimate. Like my Holocaust trauma is legitimate and needs to be respected, needs to be appreciated. Everyone needs to acknowledge the Holocaust and respect the sense in which October 7th, for example, was seen as a continuation of the ugly, awful history of pogroms and violence against Jews. But it's, it should be seen and respected and appreciated in exclusion to other people's trauma. You know, I have no more space left in my, in my worldview for the fact that Palestinians are descendants and, and experience an ethnic cleansing, for example. Um, it, it's, a it's, a, it's an awareness of my trauma that occludes uh, much of the nuance and complexity. It's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a trauma perspective where everything, you know, every, you're holding a hammer so everything looks like a nail. You know, everyone, every, every fight is a fight against Nazis now. Um, and another piece which comes up in this sort of uh, online discourse is, is a sense in which, you know, we trust our own rumors. And I don't want to go into examples of this because it's just, it's too ugly and, and too unnecessary. But, you know, the rumors that were spread around in the Zionist Jewish world about uh, the Palestinians or October 7th is that we trust those. These are our rumors. They're probably true. Um, and they radicalize us against Palestinians. But their rumors, the Palestinians have rumors about Israelis. The Palestinians have rumors about IDF soldiers. Those are blood libels. Those are lies. Anti-Semitic stereotypes. You know, that's evidence that we can never coexist. That's evidence we can never have peace. And again, this asymmetry. This distorting perspective. And, and yeah, the last piece, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to reflect in you know, the banality of evil. What is evil? Where does evil come from? Uh, to me, a, a key element, a key, a key element of that distorted, awful, dangerous perspective is the perspective that says, you know, my death is such a tragedy. The terror attack that killed my people, 
or kidnapped my people that I care about is so, so unfathomably awful. Because it is. But 10,000 deaths on your side, mass starvation, children, innocent children dying. That's just like, that's just, that's just the nature of war. That's just the art of doing business, right? When the war's over, you'll forget about all that, right? Like my deaths need to be avenged. My deaths hurt so much and they require a response of, of, of unimpressive force and destruction, you know? But when I'm done, there, there can be no other responses, right? Like there's not going to be any, that, that you'll just accept it. It's such a distorted, cruel perspective, um, which is what happens when you grow up under indoctrination or with a one, I think, very narrow, one-sided view of a, of a conflict. Um, and I think that maturity uh, requires sort of growing out of that perspective.